From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. A sobering week in general in terms of uh, school reopening and in terms of the coronavirus. But I think we need to begin with with some sad and, and tragic news out of the Middleton School District. This broke on Wednesday night. Yeah, on, on Wednesday night, uh, Middleton Superintendent Kristen Beck uh, told the school board that uh, a Middleton employee uh, has died uh, after uh, testing positive for COVID-19. As, as far as we know, this is the first uh, confirmed case of a school employee dying from the coronavirus um, since the pandemic started. And uh, yeah, I mean, our, our hearts are heavy. And it's, as the superintendent said, you know, uh, as if we needed it at this point, it's an example of uh, the toll of the coronavirus hitting home and, and hitting especially close to home in the small community of Middleton, which is in western Idaho, uh, just about a 20-minute drive west of, of Boise. Uh, but surely some sad news, uh, Kevin, today that, that gives us all pause and um, as school continues to navigate uh, the pandemic, right? And Middleton being an example of that. I mean, this is a district that is still navigating, trying to figure out what their learning model is going to be going forward in light of this news. We know a little bit more than we did on Wednesday night. Um, Southwest District Health issued a news release on Thursday and and said that the employee um, contracted coronavirus uh, outside of school before the school year and did not have contact with students. So we know that, and that was information that uh, we we didn't know on Wednesday when the news broke. And obviously that's information that's really vital to the story and really vital to to parents as they try to to navigate and and process uh, process this development. And and Uh, a few minutes later on today's show, we're gonna talk about, you know, transparency and numbers and how districts are handling reporting of the cases. But before we move to that point, this example in Middleton is, is especially sad about the toll and the cost of the coronavirus and the stakes. But it does, we were just talking before we turned on the microphone, uh, it's playing out in a community that has expressed some skepticism uh, around the pandemic, around COVID-19 and the coronavirus. And we've seen that uh, with elected officials in the legislature and now um, on the Middleton School Board, right, Kevin? Yeah, yeah, I think, I, I, let's let's take a step back and, and talk about this because I think it's important to, to put all of this into some sort of political context and some sort of a you know, public policy context. I think Middleton is probably like a lot of communities in the state in the sense that there's a sizable constituency in Middleton that is probably very skeptical about the impacts of coronavirus and, and are skeptical when they hear the superintendent talk about this being an example of this virus hitting home. How can I say that with confidence? Well, I can say that with confidence simply because of who voters in Middleton elect. Um, you know, Tammy Nichols, Representative Tammy Nichols, who lives in Middleton, is one of the most staunch and outspoken skeptics about COVID-19. She has made that clear. She made that clear before the primary, so voters knew where she stood before she was 
reelected and, and reelected fairly handily yeah. in, in a primary uh, in which she was uh, pitted against a member of the Middleton School Board, uh, Kirk Adams. Yeah, she has been very outspoken about coronavirus and skeptical about coronavirus, skeptical about the uh, stay-at-home order, skeptical about masks, you know, just skeptical in, in general. And I think that that's, that's where a lot of the state is right now. And, you know, there's, there's nothing I can say, and there's nothing we can say on this podcast that's going to change minds uh, about that in a, in a flash. Um, I, I guess my hope out of all of this, though, is, you know, we're a long way from the other side of this pandemic. That's the sad reality. And, you know, no, this is not going to go away the day after election day. That's not how this is going to play out. Uh, we're going to be dealing with this. Schools are going to be dealing with this for months and months. And, you know, this is the reality for the foreseeable future. And, and I guess my only hope out of all of this is I'm hoping six months in that we aren't so hardened in our opinions and our skepticism that we're not willing to take a step back when news like this occurs in a community like Middleton and take a step back and, and you know, question some of our own skepticism and question some of our own assumptions. And if that means, you know, you know, reading more, asking more questions, reaching out to people you know in your community who are in the healthcare professions who can talk about this, who you, who you know and who you trust, uh, who you have a relationship with, you know, I, I hope more people do that at, at this point because, you know, we started out six months ago talking about how we're all in this together and we are more divided than I've ever seen us as a country, but we are still all in this together and we all still have to work through this together as, you know, in some kind of common cause. And if that means rethinking where we are on some things and re-examining our assumptions and our, our beliefs, you know, maybe it's time to do that. And, you know, you know, I, I you know, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, you know, politicizing, you know, this development. Um, I'm really not. I mean, you know, and, you know, my thoughts uh, are with, you know, the family and the friends of this employee. And my, my thoughts are with the trustees over there who are having to work through this. This is hard for everybody. And it's, it's sad for, for those closest to the, to this employee, but, you know, let's, you know, let's take this as an opportunity to um, maybe, you know, redouble and re redouble our efforts to understand what, what's going on and how this affects uh, communities and how it affects people and how how real the situation is. Yeah, I, I think it absolutely underscores how real the situation is. And, and I don't want to, you know, play naive in, in the fact that this one incident that we learned of on Wednesday opened my eyes to the whole pandemic because the pandemic is, is very real. Uh, the numbers are real. And the numbers from the state of Idaho show that across the state, there have been, it's about 39,000 confirmed and probable uh, cases of COVID-19 since the state started tracking uh, back in March. And, and about 450 Idahoans have died. Yeah. Um, from the coronavirus. And uh, so this didn't just come out of nowhere. This didn't just uh, become real, but I think it... And, and Middleton didn't happen in isolation even right. this week. I yeah. mean, we started Monday when I was tracking the Monday 
coronavirus numbers and you know I'm just kind of doing my routine checks to, to update our map and I come to District 2 in North Central Idaho and I come to Idaho County's numbers and they doubled in one day and I, I was like wait a minute what's going on here so I contacted the health district who in turn told me no that's not an error that's an actual doubling of case numbers and if you want to find out more you're going to have to contact the corrections department, which I did. I mean, this is kind of outside of our lane, but I really wanted to understand what was going on. And we came to find out that it was a, a spike in case in testing and also a spike in cases at a state correctional facility in Idaho County. So we saw that doubling. We saw North Star Charter School in Eagle have to close uh, in response to a spike in cases. We're seeing closures in Emmett, in Glens Ferry, and, you know, it's not a one-week thing, I, I fear. I think we're going to be writing about closures and writing about changes in schedules and you know, sudden outbreaks in communities for the foreseeable future. And you know, I, again, I, I wish we were writing about other things, and I wish that you know, it would go away as quickly and as easily as skeptics think it's going to go away, but it's, I'm afraid it's just not going to happen. And this is where we are. It, it is where we are. And, and I keep, you know, going back to the the case in Middleton and, and the response in Middleton and not to pick on Middleton, but, um, you know, let's listen to what the superintendent, Kristen Beck, said. Uh, she said, quote, the dangers of COVID hit close to home. And this death underscores the need to take the necessary steps to keep our staff and our students safe, end quote. And so that's the message from the superintendent. But at the same time, in that same meeting, uh, which was covered by Rachel Spacek from the Idaho Press Tribune, who's partnered uh, with us, and she had coverage of this meeting. But at the same time that they're grappling with their co-workers' death, uh, the school board was discussing a potential move out of their own hybrid learning model into a modified model that would send K-5 through students back starting full-time for in-person learning. And then we had the, the quote from school board member Derek Moore, trustee Derek Moore. Um, and I'm just going to read it. Um, quote, we can't run and hide. I know we have cases, but we cannot decide not to move forward. There are going to be hiccups in the road, end quote. And I, I, I think that Derek, I don't know him. I think he would, ha he would do that again um, if he had that back. Uh, but I just, a lot of people seized on that comment seems to be suggesting that the death um, of an employee is a, a hiccup in the road. Uh, and, and it's, that's not what it is. Um, it, this is a real world tangible cost um, of the pandemic uh, of this virus. And it shows how deadly it is. Uh, and, and it shows the real world cost and the stakes here. And so it's not just a hiccup in the road. It's something that, absolutely needs to be addressed. And we're talking about people's lives here. Right. I think going forward, I think we'd all do well to to pay attention, though, to what uh, Superintendent Kristen Beck said, because I think she hit it on the mark. I mean, this is, you know, if you needed another reminder, six months into this, if you really actually needed another reminder that this is that this is real and it can strike anywhere, we, we had that reminder on Wednesday. Um, you know, yeah. but at this point, you know, we're, you know, we're trying our best uh, as, as journalists, not just to cover 
the news as it breaks in a school board meeting. And, and that's how we found out on Wednesday about the situation in Middleton. But we're also trying to, to understand what's happening district by, by district with the case numbers. And that's been uh, that's been a challenge. That's been a, a challenge. And, and, and I think that we should spend a couple of minutes here um, as well. We learned more about the Middleton case as the week went on. But you and I have talked about you know, developing our strategies for, for covering the virus. But what we're running into, Kevin, is literally from district to district, the procedures for disclosing information about cases and who they affect are, are very different. And, and I don't know if it would be helpful to start this conversation and frame it by sort of contrasting what the state's two largest school districts are doing, the, the Boise School District and its neighbor, West Ada, um, Boise, publishes reports that show the number of confirmed and probable cases uh, down to the building level. And I believe they break it out, um, whether it's a student, whether it's a staff member, um, and give you that information. Whereas yeah. West Ada, um, there's not that level of detail at all. But t- tell me, you really started looking at this. Tell me a little bit about what you encountered as you tried to you know, gather more information from district to district to get a fuller more real-time understanding of what our schools are navigating. Well, this is just a mess. I mean, there's no other way to put it right yeah. now. I mean, you know, credit to the Boise School District for being transparent and getting information out as best they can. And that's, you know, that's to be commended. That's that's what we want to see. And not just what we as reporters want to see. This isn't about making life easier for, for us journalists. This is about making life easier and making decisions a little bit more informed for parents, you know, help parents navigate what to do with their kids and by providing parents the information that they need to make an informed decision. That's where the rubber meets the road here. It's not about, you know, making Kevin Richards job easier as a reporter, you know, that's who cares, but parents should know what's going on. So what we've got is it's a mess. It's a fiasco because as you point out, Boise's doing a good job of this. West Ada, the largest district in the state with 40,000 students, is not doing nearly as much to get information out. And, you know, shout out to our friends over at the Idaho Statesman who did some really important watchdog journalism in this regard a few a few days ago. The story broke about a week ago. Uh, they did freedom of information. They did public records requests to try to get a sense of what our school district's going to release in terms of coronavirus case numbers by school, by district. And they found that even just in the Treasure Valley, just in their readership area, it's all over the map. So if it's all over the map in the Treasure Valley, you can only imagine what it's uh, like when you're trying to get information for 115 school districts, 60 or 70 charter schools. There is some hope out of all of this. Uh, The Department of Health and Welfare is talking about trying to create a database a school level database, and they're hoping to have something up in the near future. Um, it's interesting because you know, this is not as easy as it sounds. You know, you you would think that you know posting this information and compiling this information would be uh, you know, would be a snap at the state level. It really isn't. Um, when the state gets a positive test result, they get the address of the individual who tested positive. Now that really helps if you're trying to create a database of uh, cases in long-term care facilities. 
and the state has started to release that data and they've been doing a weekly roundup on that since June. So if you have a loved one in a long-term care facility, you can see what's happening in that facility in, in reasonably good real time. So you know, that's happening there. But those addresses don't really help health and welfare figure out whether a, a child is in a school or not because that child could be homeschooled, that child could be going to a private school or a charter school as opposed to the neighborhood traditional public school. So health and welfare is gonna to have to dig down deeper into the information to try to figure out where these where these students are attending school. So it's it's a process and it's more of a complicated process. So I guess we can only hope that health and welfare gets there. And the, the thing that does give me some hope, Clark, is that health and welfare has done a, a good job in the past in terms of releasing school level data, even grade level data, on immunization records. That's, that's exactly right. That's information I've used repeatedly over the past few years when I want to try to get a sense of where are the immunization rates highest? Where are the immunization opt-out rates highest? You know, they've done a really good job of providing that data to the to reporters, but more importantly, they've done a good job of making that information available to the public so parents can know if there's a high opt-out rate in their community so that they can make informed decisions for their own kids. So I do have some hope. At the end of this process, at the end of this tunnel, I do have some hope that health and welfare is going to uh, to help us understand this better and help uh, help parents understand this better. And, you know, we're going to launch a feature. I'm going to launch a feature on Monday looking at the case numbers on college campuses. Because, again, here's an example. All 11 colleges and universities in the state, public and private, have websites where they're updating uh, case information. They're all doing it differently, so it's going to be a little bit wonky and funky to try to put it together in a roundup. But you know, at least they're putting the information out. Yeah. At least they're letting you know parents know and communities know what's happening on campuses. If they can do it, if colleges with only a couple thousand students, you know, like College of Idaho, can do this, there's no reason why school districts shouldn't be doing this right now. And ultimately, I, I think there's no reason why health and welfare can't get some data out that helps parents uh, make informed decisions about what's happening. So I hope we get there. So the optimist in me is, you know, has fingers crossed and, and, and hope that we can provide you with better data and that you can find better data for yourself. Yeah. And I mean, just to be clear, we're not looking to identify you know, any minor students or anything like that, you know, who may have cases to shame them or embarrass them or, or no, anything we, like that. But what we want we, to be able to say... We've never back shamed a kid. We've never no. said, oh, wow, here's a second grade kid in school X in community Y and, you know, going to school without uh, without up-to-date immunizations. No. That, we want aggregate data so we can show trends. Yeah. So what's happening in communities and to be able to know That's just what we want to do here yeah in a matter of life and death we want to do it here yeah so just hopefully we get there all we want to know is at school x in district y uh there were three confirmed cases this week you know that's the kind of information that we're looking for um you know and, and, and that provides a parent a service to parents um to be able to know more about 
you know, what's going on and what's going on in their neighborhood school. And so that that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, naming kids or identifying, you know, little Billy in third grade or anything like that. We, we just want to know, okay, here's where the outbreaks are. Here's where it's concentrated. This is the latest data that's been confirmed. That That's what we're talking about, right? Right. So we will stay on top of it. We'll stay on top of the process with health and welfare. And as information comes from the district levels, as we have developments on the district level, um, the school level, as we saw repeatedly this week, we'll, uh, we'll do our best to keep that, uh, you know, you know, put that in context and get that out to y'all. Yeah, absolutely. Everything that we've done this week uh, related to the cases and the the, the situation in Middleton uh, is up on the homepage at www.idahoednews.org. It's a good place to get caught up just because there was so much news this week. But there's a couple of other topics that we want to get to this week that are related to the coronavirus but aren't specifically related you know, to an outbreak in cases anywhere. But you're starting to get a sense of what may be happening with enrollment. And just looking at kindergarten, this could be the tip of the iceberg for some changes that, that could be um, playing out right now. Right, Kevin? Yeah, I, I think we're just starting to get a, a sense, a quantifiable sense of what's happening with enrollment and what that means this year and what it may mean down the road. Uh, Sammy Edge looked at some of the preliminary enrollment projections. We won't get final enrollment figures for, for public schools for a few weeks. But we're starting to hear from districts that are seeing drop-offs of 4%, 9%, I want to say, uh, the Lakeland School District is talking about. And the numbers that she sees are, uh, especially at the kindergarten level, especially in the, the early yeah. elementary grades, the, the drop-off seems to be most acute there. So it kind of raises the question. We won't be able to answer it this year. Uh, we may be looking at this issue for years. You know, as kids are kept home uh, for kindergarten, um, maybe they're homeschooled, maybe they're sent to a, a private school or a charter school, or they're you know, you know enrolled in a virtual charter. Do those kids come back to traditional public schools in first grade or second grade? I mean, what does this do in terms of enrollment in in the long term future? We can't answer that, but we can certainly see that this year, the enrollment picture is very different. So Sammy was looking at the enrollment numbers. I took a look at something that we look at every September, the emergency levies. Yeah. And quick recap of what the emergency levy is. This is a levy that school trustees can, can impose unilaterally. They don't have to go to voters. It's a short-term, one-year levy that's designed to help schools handle the cost of growth. Well, what we're seeing is that a lot of school districts that have been growing year after year after year, they're just not growing. So they're not even going to collect an emergency levy this year. They're not even looking at it. So the West Ada district, which has collected millions of dollars in emergency levies year after year after year, because they've had hundreds of new students every year, no emergency levy. They're, they're not expecting an enrollment increase. That's a big deal. Bonneville, Twin Falls, similar stories in those two districts that have grown year after year after year. The best I could find and the best our data guru, Randy Schrader could find, we have found one school district in the state that is collecting an emergency levy. It is the Jefferson County School District. It's about an $850,000 levy. 
they have seen an enrollment increase, so they are uh, going to collect a levy to help offset the, the cost of growth. There may be others. If we find them, we'll report about them, but that's the only one we found right now. So we've gone from 14 districts last year and maybe about $12 million, $12 million plus in emergency levies to as best we can find one school district and about $850,000 in supplement and emergency levies. So that's a big, that's a big signal of what's going on in enrollment. It's, it's a canary in the coal mine. Yeah. Our initial reporting is really suggesting, um, a stark change in, in the number of districts pursuing those emergency levies that is tied to enrollment and enrollment increases. And so that could come to bear later on. And it could be, you know, yet another indicator of of what's coming forward. So we'll continue um, to watch that and try to put in context what the numbers are, what's happening as best we can figure it out, and then what it means at the end of the day. Right. Uh, another we look at a bunch of other things this week. You took a closer look at what's happening right now with uh, the IRI, with the reading tests that are being administered in many cases remotely. Uh, give us a quick rundown of what you found there and what we're looking for down the road. Yeah, the state is extending uh, the window to test kids for the fall Idaho reading indicator, the fall IRI test. That's given to every K through three student in Idaho uh, every fall. And then again in the spring, and it's really designed uh, to measure our students' reading competency and literacy competency. Uh, and it's part of the big reading initiative. That's how we measure it. Uh, but the fall gives sort of baseline data, and then the spring will show uh, growth or improvements during the year, and you can use that to track going forward. Uh, but because of disruptions with the coronavirus, because a number of school districts started late after Labor Day, because a number of large districts started either with an online-only model or a hybrid model. Uh, the state has extended that testing window. It was supposed to close today, September 25th. It's been extended a couple of weeks until October 9th. And the expectation is that every student in K-3 uh, will be tested with the IRI. Uh, the state thinks a lot of them will be able to take it in person at school now with this extra time. But there are provisions uh, that if you're attending remotely, online-only, um, the state can handle the testing that way, uh, whether it's a school level, an individual classroom level, or even down to the individual student level is what they told me. And this is going to be important data. I talked to the superintendent of the Bruno Grandview School District, Ryan Cantrell, uh, who we've talked to several times over the last couple of years. He finished up testing in the first week of the school year because they weren't sure how long they would be able to do in-person education. So they've long since finished up testing and are starting to get some of their local data back in Bruno Grandview, and uh, Ryan's concerned. Uh, he's concerned about the impact of school closures that basically closed school for much of the fourth quarter uh, of the previous school year. Um, and he's saying that the initial baseline data uh, at the elementary level in the IRI is down between 20 to 40% compared to the fall 2019 baseline data. And so they're moving into another round of assessments, trying to see if, if what they're doing to close the gaps is working. Uh, but Ryan told me he thinks that's the next big challenge for his school district and for the American educational system is, is to certainly get through this pandemic, but then to take stock of, of where our students are 
and to recognize that there's going to be some gaps that may be widening. And he thinks that's the next great challenge is to address that and close those gaps and deal uh, with that closure uh, from the spring and the, you know, sort of rolling closures that may be experienced from district to district this fall. Um, so I thought that that was a pretty interesting story. There's a lot to it. If you want to get caught up, uh, the homepage is a good spot to go. That's www.idahoednews.org. But we've talked a lot about the reading initiative uh, and where our students are at at reading. And so another, you know, area for concern here. It, it feels like it kind of brings us full circle. I mean, we started with some really sobering developments on the coronavirus and outbreaks in, in schools and, and the case of Hilton. And we're wrapping up with some sobering news about reading and the effects of the closure of schools maybe from last spring and what we're seeing in terms of the you know, early indications on reading skills and reading scores this fall and you know it underscores you know there's nobody in the education community who doesn't want to get back to something resembling normal there's nobody who doesn't want to get kids back in the school the challenge is how do you do that safely and how do you do that in the, in the face of the coronavirus which we continue to see can strike uh schools and strike communities very quickly and and hit very hard so it brings us all to kind of this full circle i mean you know we've got serious education challenges, but we have a serious public health challenge that is complicating those uh, serious education challenges. You know, we're not going to solve the education challenges unless and until we get a handle on the public health challenge. You, you can't, you know, you can't snap your fingers and wish the coronavirus away uh, as much as we'd all like to see it go away. Yeah. I had a, a fascinating conversation with Ryan Cantrell from Bruno Grandview this week. Uh, it was mostly over email. But the context is, Kevin, you and I have both been out to Bruno Grandview a couple of times in the last couple of years. This is a remote, small district um, out in southwest Idaho. It's basically an hour, hour and a half from the next closest outpost. Yeah. But Ryan said that the situation is extremely challenging. He said that they're caught in a situation where they have to compromise. And the background is, is that Bruno Grandview had been identified as one of the state's lowest performing schools about three years ago and had since taken significant strides to redesign their curriculum, redesign the culture up and down throughout the district and its, and its buildings there. And they were doing big improvements. I mean, we're posting big, big games. My series about literacy, and I wanted to point out some success stories. Bruno Grandview was one of several schools that I that I spotlighted because yeah. they had significant improvements in their reading scores. And you know, to, to hear Ryan Cantrell talk about it, a significant drop off in reading scores. With that as a backdrop, I mean that that makes it really really sobering and, you know, really alarming to hear because yeah. there's a group that did a lot of things right and, and, and took a lot of steps and took it really seriously and took ownership. Yeah. And, 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 and they were getting results and yeah. you see those results maybe melting away. That's, uh, you know, that's concerning and it should not just be concerning for folks in that school district. That's uh, a sign of 
what can happen and what can happen very quickly. Yeah, it, I don't think that that's going to be limited to the experience in Bruno Grandview. But, uh, you know, one more thing I wanted to get to just really quick that Ryan told me, you know, he said they're forced to compromise, that, that sort of their hands are tied because of the pandemic. He said the school district at this point, uh, leadership, the educators, they know what works uh, to close gaps. They know what strategies they've been using. But because of the pandemic, they can't do everything that they want to do um, with their hands-on, face-to-face, you know, group learning instruction. And so they're having to make compromises between what they feel they can safely do amid the pandemic versus what they know that they did before the pandemic that was producing results. And so he said it's a really difficult position where they're they're not able to do everything that they know is effective because of the limitations imposed by this pandemic. And I think that that's something that I really want to, you know, shift and take on as a focus is how schools are responding to these closures and what achievement looks like and and where the gaps are and and how we move in to address that. Um, I I don't know. That was a really eye-opening conversation with Ryan, and I've learned a lot from spending a lot of time with that guy over the last two years. Um, and this was just another example. We both spent a lot of time talking to who's, who's dealing with a lot of the challenges that are facing rural schools and, and schools with, with high poverty, uh, a diverse student uh, population. Yeah. And, you know, I, again, a district that has been a success story in a lot of ways and has been pointed to as a success story in a lot of ways, uh, really at the forefront now of some of the challenges that, uh, districts large and small are, are going to be facing in the middle of this pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was all the, the big topics I wanted to get to. Kevin, was there anything else that you wanted to highlight before we uh, close it out? No, I'm, I'm swamped. I mean, I feel like we've, uh, you know, we've, we've thoroughly entertained and uplifted our listeners and I, I, I don't see how we could uh, make them any happier. Well, this was yeah, a lot. It's been a, it's been a rough week. It's been a, a challenging week and a sobering week and a lot of serious stuff to talk about this week but there's you know again you know as as we say i think on most of these podcasts there's a lot of good stuff still on the on the website that we didn't get to this week i took a closer look at uh, coronavirus aid and how it's being spent on college campuses uh, you took a closer look at the process of trying to find a new superintendent in the blaine county school district which has you know kind of run through a, a couple of superintendents in the past few years. It's, yeah. a, it's a, you know, it's a tough audience up there. It's a, it's a district that's had a lot of discord and a lot of, uh, community, uh, you know, community controversy surrounding the school district. So you took a closer yep. look at that. So a lot more than we could get to in this podcast, but a lot more that we hope you check out on our website. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for, for sticking with, with us and spending time with us and, and, and trusting us as we, attempt to break down this ever complicated intersection of education politics and education policy. I know that was a lot um, this week, but it just felt like there were a number of big stories uh, that we wanted to focus on. And uh, so thanks. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, Yeah. Check out the homepage, www.idahoednews.org. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter at Idaho Ed News. Uh, If you're on social media, you can give us a follow Uh, through our channels there. But uh, thanks so much. We will be back uh, next week for another all-new edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. Until then, I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe and have a good week.